Kremsky too. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined today as I will be for every podcast by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Good morning, Mark. So thanks for joining us. Uh, before we get started, it's probably best to let you all know about the purpose of this podcast. Uh, we're both now in our fifth year of teaching American History too at the University of Edinburgh. Um, the, the course is a kind of broad survey um, of the entirety of American history uh, for second year undergraduate students that begins with colonization of the new world by empire-hungry Europeans and ends with Ronald Reagan winning the Cold War all by himself. Or at least that's one historian's controversial interpretation. Now, there is a debate I look forward to engaging with. All in good time. Uh, so, over the past four years, uh, students in the course have routinely asked us for lectures to be podcasted. And now, while there's some merit to this idea, lectures, however entertaining and insightful they might be, can only ever offer a leaping-off point, a gateway for your own knowledge and understanding of any topic. So our aim for this podcast is to keep students doing the American History 2 course at Edinburgh, or other students and members of the public who have an interest in American history, a chance to achieve a slightly deeper understanding of the controversial debates and issues that shape uh, one of today's preeminent world powers. To do this, uh, we're going to dive into the work of some of the best, and in our opinion, some of the worst historical interpretations of major events in American history. Our other goal is to help you get a sense of the bigger picture, help you to connect the dots that link events in American history. You know, for university students studying any course as they come into the first time, sometimes it's hard to make sense of why, how this all connects, how it all matters. So hopefully we'll be able to help in that regard. You know, for example, why does the introduction of African slaves to the American colonies in 1619 plant a seed, uh, which leads to the American Civil War in the 1860s? And why does the aftermath of that war established precedents which make the achievement of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s possible. We hope that those of you that listen will get in touch. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and please feel free to let us know if you completely disagree with any of our interpretations of events. I mean, there's a good chance you will, and uh, I think I speak for both of us when we both, that we both welcome that debate in history. And also, just before we get started on today's topic, I just want to let you know the ways to get in touch is, is we have a Twitter handle which is at AH2, that's uh, spelled T O O, podcast. And we also have an email address which is the same AH2, spelled T O O, at outlook.com. Now, additionally, uh, before we get properly started into this, I would just like to comment that although we both work for the University of Edinburgh in a teaching capacity, uh, the views that are expressed on the American History 2 podcast should not be taken as representative uh, of Edinburgh University, of the School of History, Classics and Archaeology, or the History Department. Uh, this is essentially our own thing. Any views expressed here are our own. Uh, so please do not write complaining to the university mm-hmm. about this. This is a, a private enterprise essentially designed to benefit students and those further afield who are studying American history. That's probably a good disclaimer to have there, Malcolm. So. I think what we're, I mean, what we're going to dive straight into today is the the introduction to slavery in the col in the colonies, which is kind of the start point for our course anyway, um, and uh, for for various other courses I imagine, and we're going to look at it with particular re- reference to the southern colonies such as Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, and uh, when the when slavery came in there in the seventeenth century. And to do this as a leaping off point, we're going to use the question that most students will have to deal with at some point or another, um, which is, did slavery lead to racism or did racism lead to slavery? So Malcolm, before I ask you in blunt terms to answer that question, um, 
what is the point of considering whether slavery led to racism or racism indeed led to slavery? Is it purely just a way for us to get students debating or does it actually serve a broader purpose? I think you're correct there in saying that it is a way to get students debating and it serves a broader purpose. It's one of these you know, necessarily false dichotomies that we use to get into the debates and get into the issues. It's like saying, did, did America or the Soviet Union win the Cold War? You know, one of one of those questions. You mean there's a debate about that? There, there, there is a, there is a debate about that, uh, unaware as you might be about it. Uh, it's one of those kind of false dichotomies that's essential to get into the guts of what we're actually looking at. Uh, because the issues that lead to slavery and lead to racism and how they're all intertwined and mingled are much more complicated than just was it racism or was it slavery or was it vice versa. So it's a necessarily you know, false dichotomy in order to get into the guts of what we're actually going to be looking at, to get students and anyone else who's interested thinking about the issues and the very complicated, multi-layered issues that are at the heart of debates about slavery, about colonisation, about race and the evolution of America and the United States eventually as a nation. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, to kind of get you to break down those multi-layers that you've just said there... Um, I think the first thing, I, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but one of the first things we should do when answering this question, you know, does slavery lead to racism or did racism lead to slavery, it's probably best to define what race meant. I think that's a good point, and this is, I mean, that's a good learning point, I think, for students, especially when answering questions like this in written form, is always define your terms. You know, if someone says, you know, is this racism, well, what is racism in the, in the context that you're looking at? It's like a question of, you know, uh, about feminism. What is feminism in the context uh, that you're looking at? So defining your terms is a good learning point, I think, if you're studying this kind of thing. Race means completely different things to different people at different times. What we think of as race these days does not necessarily apply back in the... Is that an ambulance coming to take us away? That does not necessarily apply. Uh, obviously, some sort of emergency at the University of Edinburgh does not necessarily apply in the 17th or 18th centuries. Our modern vision of race is not the vision of race that the people have back then. Uh, is there any examples you could maybe draw on from the time? Well, I mean, for example, turning away from America, actually, and looking at France, for example, in the 17th and 18th century, there are discussions about French domestic issues. Race is brought into the debate, but when they're talking about race there, it's a differentiation between the nobility and the upper classes and the lower classes, the working classes, the peasantry, all that kind of thing in France. So in that case, when they say race, what they're actually talking about is possibly class and class differences. Ideas of race based on biological determinants, such as skin colour, are the way we look at race today. But also, sometimes in the, the context of, uh, let's say, the current Scottish referendum debates, someone might make a comment and someone might perceive that as anti-Scottish and go, well, you're just being racist. Now, obviously, the Scots are not a race, and race is a bunk cultural concept anyway. But race and racism are used in multiple different ways at different times. So it doesn't mean any one particular thing. I think in the case of American slavery, when people think about race, they're thinking about biologically determined views based on the skin colour and origins of black Africans. Okay, great. I mean, and, and as you can tell, listener, we recorded this podcast uh, before the, the Scottish referendum uh, finished the way it did, and all hail Emperor Alexander, I'm sure. Um, so to move on 
to kind of look at some of the historiography, the kind of main, the kind of big works that people think about when they think of this question or when they think about, you know, 17th century slavery. Um, arguably one of the, the main seminal works was that of Oscar and Mary Handlin, who in the 1950s um, argued that slavery was, and I quote, not a response to the unique qualities in the Negro himself. So clearly here we have historians that are arguing that race had very little to do with slavery. Um, becoming part, becoming established in the American colonies. Is, am I reading that right, or is are they saying something a wee bit more complex? Do you think? No, I think you're you're correct because one of the other things that they say is that slavery emerges from, and I quote from the Handlins, adjustment to American conditions of traditional European institutions. So they're talking about it was the adjustment to this new environment, this very harsh environment. It's quite different from what colonists, for example, the south of England, might find at home. The environment is completely different, completely different climatic conditions, all that kind of thing. It's the adaptation of traditional institutions, societal and political institutions, and economic institutions, transplanted to the American colonies, that leads to slavery. So there's a heavily kind of societal and economic argument. It was the requirements of, specifically economics, that lead to slavery. But is it not true that the Hanlons are arguing this in the 1950s? And this is a time before, I mean, obviously the civil rights movement, the long civil rights movement has started, but it's not in the full flow, you know, it's not achieving the legislation that it will in the 1960s, and it's not forefront, especially of white people, white Americans' mind in the 1950s. And this is also a time when, you know, historians routinely argue that Reconstruction was a failure because it was a mistake to give African Americans voting rights. It was a mistake to give them equal opportunity in the South. You know, very you know racist arguments essentially by uh, most of the top universities in America. Um, is it not fair then to say the reason that the Hanlons don't talk about race and don't see it as as key is because, well, maybe they don't want to, um, or maybe they don't even think to because it's not it isn't forefront of their mind. It could be. I don't know. This is something we often, as you know, we say to students, contextualise the historiography, contextualise the historian. When are they writing? Why are they writing what they're writing? But with Oscar and Mary Handlin, to be honest, I don't know enough about their background, about where they come from, or what their views they might have been. Enthusiastic supporters of civil rights. They might have been hardcore members of the KKK. <laughs> I actually don't know enough about the Handlins to comment on that. So in this context, it could be just that they didn't think about it. Race issues were just not part of the way they thought about how we analyse slavery in the American colonies. It's a good point for students to think about, because we often say contextualise the historian, but it's difficult with some historians. You look at a historian, for example, like Richard Hofstadter, one of the, the great figures in post-World War II American historiography, it's much more easy to contextualise him because we can easily find out about his political affiliations, his viewpoints, who he liked, who he didn't like, who his friends were, who his enemies were, all that kind of thing. So we can place Hofstadter in a context much more easily. And I think we'll come on to look at Hofstadter and some of his work looking at the American right in particular in later podcasts. So this idea of contextualisation is often problematic, but it's good to think about you know, putting the historian in their situation where they come from, and it encourages the student, I think, more broadly, just to think critically about the issues surrounding historiography. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, I'm going to come back. I'm glad you raised Richard Hofstadler, but I'm going to come back to that maybe in, in a few minutes' time. But I was wondering if you could say a little bit. I think one of the things that can be sometimes mucky for students at this point, I mean, is I remember when I first taught it anyway, I couldn't quite pull it apart in my head. What could you lay out a wee bit what indentured servitude was and why? Why that's important to whether race was an issue, whether racism led to slavery? Of of course, right? Yeah, no problem. So. Prior to slaves being introduced to the North American colonies in 1619, there's already a system of what can look from the outside of quasi-slavery. It's called indentured servitude. What that is, is say you're sitting uh, somewhere in central Scotland, you're broke, you're dissatisfied with your life, you've heard through the grapevine about these new North American colonies that the Stuart monarchy are always bragging about and all that <laughs> kind of thing. So you say, hmm, I fancy going there. Now, the only way to get there is to essentially sign your life away for five or seven years. And you say, I will give a person over in the colonies or someone who's going to the colonies my service, my labour. You're selling your labour to them for a period of years. In return, they give you food and lodging. You don't get, really get paid. And at the end of your term, you finish your term of service and you've got a chance to have land in the colony. You're now in the colonies. You can have a free man in the new world. A free man in the new world, all that kind of thing. So indentured servitude is selling your labour for a period of time and then afterwards you're free. So it's absolutely not slavery. Okay, It's an important difference between indentured servitude and what we see in the, later in the North American colonies of, of chattel slavery, where the slave is the absolute property of the owner. They're a piece of property like a table or uh, a, you know, some cattle. They are not people with rights. There's no length of service. They are there for life until they die or become useless. They're just the property of the owner. So that's the important difference between indentured servitude, which we see quite a lot in the colonies uh, in this kind of like period in the 17th century, but dies out because of economic and social changes. Right, okay, and I mean, yeah, you, you say that it dies out because of economic and social changes, which, you know, I heartily agree with in many ways, um, um, on the most. But I was just wondering, I mean, in terms of events, I mean, Bacon's Rebellion seems quite significant here. Uh, I mean, is Bacon's Rebellion as important as you sort of think about it in the story of, you know, it's taught a lot in lectures, you know, we think of it. But, I mean, is Bacon's Rebellion as significant um, as it would appear to us looking back from a 21st century context? I would, I would say yes, because in the, the 17th century we see the rise of the tobacco plantation economy. Now tobacco is incredibly labour intensive to cultivate. You need a lot of indentured servants. Now, there's a multiplicity of things happening in the 17th century. There are actually at points quite a sharp decline in the number of indentured servants travelling to the New World. There's various reasons for this. A lot of it's domestic stuff happening. We'll take the British Isles as the example. Domestic stuff happening within the British Isles. There's also news coming back from the colonies that conditions perhaps aren't as great uh, as you know they might be. And then for those indentured servants who are in the colonies, a lot of them, after they finish their term of service, are not getting the opportunities that they thought they might. The opportunities for land and wealth are much more limited. Okay, So, you have a problem with a very labour-intensive plantation economy, uh, a dissatisfied kind of like lower class that is existing uh, within the colonies and a lack of labour coming across the Atlantic. Summer 1676, 
As you mentioned, Bacon's Rebellion. So this is led by a wealthy planter, quite a, a rich man called Nathaniel Bacon. Now he's rebelling against colonial authority. Now what he does, he leads a large group of planters, free African Americans, but mostly indentured servants, against colonial and British authority. That's an important point. What he first does is attack Native Americans because this is one of their grievances. Colonial authority is not doing enough to protect them from Native American attacks. But then they turn on the royal governor of Virginia, a guy called William Barclay, and they end up burning Jamestown, the principal town of Virginia at the time. So this rebellion, which is an alliance of planters, indentured servants and African Americans, becomes a sort of catalytic event. Edmund Morgan, writing in, I think, 1975, one of the key thinkers uh, on American colonial history, now he argues that this event catalyzes the move from indentured servitude to slaves and begins the turn towards racism. Okay? So what Morgan argues is that gradually after Bacon's Rebellion, the ruling classes in the colonies see that the move towards a more controllable form of labour in the form of slaves is actually better for working the, the plantations and avoids things like Bacon's Rebellion. You know, slaves can't, they're not going to end up being free, they're slaves for life. So you're not going to have a class of kind of uh, the lower strata of society, colonial society rising up and saying, you know, we're upset with our conditions, we're not getting enough wealth, we don't have enough land, all that kind of thing. So, put simply, what you're saying is the move, I mean, if we follow Morgan's logic, and also believe, like, you know, something, kind of T.H. Breen and Peter Parrish tend to kind of agree with this thing, you know, that the sla- slavery is, in essence, about, like, a, work, a kind of work all for all of society, all of white society. I, you have the planters at the top who no longer have to worry about the servant, the white indentured servants below them, the rebelling. And you have the indentured ser- former indentured servants now with a social strata beneath them who feel, you know, that sort of, that boosts their own esteem, for lack of a better word, the fact that they have a social strata beneath them. They can look back down at the black slave community and go, we are better than you. Therefore, I'm not more prone to rebel against the people above me. And is, is that kind of boiled down what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you said, T.H. Breen, Peter Parrish and Edmund Morgan all you know, make this point that it gives the lower strata of colonial society another lower strata of society to direct their anger and resentment and fear and distrust about down at rather than directing it up towards the ruling classes of colonial society, focuses anger and resentment downwards towards a more despised strata. It's, it's an interesting, although it seems almost too neat sometimes, this idea that all of a sudden, you know, white society is placated because they have something beneath them. It seems a bit too neat. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with you there. Interesting point to make, though, before we conclude this, this kind of talk. In 1650, okay, 3% of the population in the Chesapeake area, so one of the main areas of colonisation, 3% are black African slaves. 3% of the population. By 1770, black African slaves make up 39% of the population in the Chesapeake. So that is a massive, over 120 years, that is a massive increase in the slave population. That thing really demonstrates the move towards you know, a slave economy. The move away from indentured servitude 
and move towards slavery. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's uh, quite a revealing stat anyway. I mean, to kind of move away from from discussion of slavery itself, I mean, I was interested when you brought up uh, Hofstadter earlier. And, you know, we've, kind of, we've already mentioned Parrish. I've always found Peter Parrish's work. It was in 1989 he's writing... And he says, you know, that the slavery and the belief in racial inferiority march hand in hand, reinforcing each other. Um, and this, to me, like, I've always found it agreeable, but is it a cop-out, offence it, by saying, you know, it was a bit both, a bit this? Whereas with Hofstadter, he was a guy who picks an argument and he runs with it for all he's worth. You know, he, you, for, better, for, for better, for worse, for right or for wrong, Richard Hofstadter provokes debate. Um, and whereas with Parrish, you know, you get the easy answer of, you You know, you might ask a student to answer a question, they'll go, oh, it was a bit of both. And where do you go with that? So is it maybe better to have a guy like Hofstadler that's giving you something to debate about, maybe um, kind of pushing your creative thinking? Or do you think the, the kind of the approach of Parrish um, is, the more, is the more important or more, more trustworthy? I'm going to answer that with a cop-out. I like both. No, the thing is, they serve different pur- they serve different purposes though. Because Hofstadter, his most notable works, stuff like you know the paranoid style of American politics. He's writing about people he obviously hates. <laughs> he's not on the fence because he's so angry and so despises the people he's writing about that he can't possibly think about the nuances of the situation. I mean, I I love Hofstadter's work. But you can just see the bias inherent in what he's writing. Whereas with, with Peter Parrish, I think he's quite fair to point out that things are a lot more complex. There's two things, racism and slavery, go hand in hand. And there's all sorts of other stuff happening in society. All sorts of political things happening. All sorts of economic stuff happening. Because people kind of, you know, sometimes people would go, oh, you know, economics. Not too interested in that. But it's an absolutely vital part of what's going on here. I think there's a there's a good argument made by another key figure in the historiography of, of slavery, uh, David Eltis, who makes an argument that links into arguments about race and about you know what all this means, and he suggests that the reason that Europeans enslaved Africans is because of the inside ideas of insider and outsider status. No matter how low someone was, say, in English society. Or Scottish society, they were still an insider. You know, they were still part of that society. They'd been born and brought up here. They were. They followed the same religion. All these kind of ideas. Black Africans are outside of that. They're outsiders. They're visually different. They have different religion, different cultural practices. They're geographically different. They're separated by a huge distance. All that kind of thing. So the idea of insiders and outsiders come to this. Eltis argues, he makes, the, he makes the point that had the ruling classes, for example, of British society or European society been able to create a distance and separation between themselves and, for example, the peasantry, it might have been easier to see them as outsiders and thus enslave them. Because enslaving white Europeans would have actually been the more economic thing to do. It's cheaper to enslave people that you don't have to go to Africa to pick them up and all that kind of thing. It would be cheaper to do that. Why did that not happen? Because they were insiders. The Africans are outsiders. An interesting point that's made in this is that you look at the Russian Empire, the serf 
society there is effectively chattel slavery. Now, there's kind of white Europeans enslaving other white Europeans. Does that not kind of give lie to Eltis's argument? Well, not really, because the upper strata of Russian society, you know, separate themselves. They are the insiders. The serfs are the outsiders. Yeah, so I mean, and, and that kind of fits as well. I mean, Peter Colchin, for example, brings up the idea of Irish racism already existing, but you don't get Irish slaves. You get plenty of Irish indentured servants, but you don't get Irish slaves. So they then must have been part of, if we're buying into Eltis's, you know, quite convincing argument you've laid out there, the fact, you know, they would be part of this insider European um, strata rather than the outsider um, in that case. So, I mean, before, before we completely wrap up uh, this, uh, this section, so at the beginning I mentioned about, uh, kind of laid out the question, did slavery lead to racism or did racism lead to slavery? Is, are you willing to take a stand on either side of that argument? Do you, do you give particular weight to it or do you see it as just a chicken and egg, like what came first question? It's, it's too complex for simple answers like that. Far too complex. There is, as we've said all the way through, there's a multiplicity of things. And it's a matter of the person that's analysing it, you know, making up their own mind. I think that I'm convinced by Altus's insider-outsider argument, mm -hmm. and I think that ideas of whiteness and blackness were part of that, but there was a whole lot more contributing to it. We've hardly touched on the matter of religion, for example, which is often used as a justification for slavery in later periods. So I think it's, you need to be aware of the co com complexities of it. And one thing I would say, just another point about Eltis, sometimes I've seen arguments that say, and Eltis comments on this in his article, said, well, hang on a minute, it's initially Africans enslave other Africans and then take them to the ports and they get taken off across to the, the, the new world. Your insider-outsider thing doesn't work there. It's like, well, it does, because there's no such thing as African. There's no concept of Africanness. You know, it's based on geographic, regional, tribal affiliations as an insider, and you're able to enslave these outsiders who are not part of your regional, geographic, or tribal affiliation. So that works there as well. It's, it's to do with insider and outsider status. So I think that's quite important to consider that. I would recommend Eltis's argument, uh, argument his article, to, to students studying this topic. Okay then, so, final, final question before we wrap this up then. So if we look forward, we talked about how we wanted to help people kind of connect the dots here. What, the, the experience of slavery being introduced to the colonies in the 17th century, I mean, where does this fit into the broader story of the creation of the United States? Which, you know, they say we've, we've kind of got to the 1770s so far, I'm sorry, 1670s so far. We're still more than 100 years until the American Revolution. So where do you fit this into the broader story? I think it's absolutely vital to the, the idea of the creation of the United States, of America as we recognise it. I mean, what it does is, fundamentally, unlike colonists travelling to the, the colonies or indentured servants, sometimes quasi-willingly going to the colonies, it forcibly introduces another population into the North American continent. You know, black Africans have absolutely no choice in this. They are put in chains, put in horrible, stinking slave ships to potentially die on the journey across, and they're forcibly introduced to a life of chattel slavery on a new continent. 
So this population is forcibly thrown into the, the kind of like this new world of America. And when they get there, there's these differences created between the masters and the slaves, you know, between the strata and this, you know, we see this rise of, of racism based on skin colour. Uh, and this, you know, in, introduction of, North, you know, of African slaves creates these underlying tensions within American society that are going to bubble away. It creates problems for American politics as well, because when we look at the Constitution, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks' time, slavery is in the Constitution, but not explicitly. And they're worrying about the position of constitu constitutional ideas and how slavery fits into the ideas of American democracy. What does American democracy mean? What do the rights of man mean? What does freedom, liberty, all these kind of ideas? So this leads to debates about the position of slavery within the American Constitution, within American democracy. And I think that's the fundamental point about slavery. It creates a problem for the creation of American democracy that is going to carry on for the next... Still going. Still, still going on, but I mean, it leads through the Civil War, Reconstruction, Civil Rights Movement, even up to now. So I think the introduction of slaves to the North American colonies fundamentally creates a huge problem for the idea of American freedom, of liberty and democracy and what that actually means when they're trying to form a new nation when the United States comes about. Okay, brilliant. So, uh, I think that's us for today. Uh, thanks for uh, those of you that have listened. Uh, as we said at the start, please come to your own conclusions. Uh, all the historians we discussed on this podcast, we will put a reading list up um, for you to peruse if you so choose. And next on the American History 2 podcast, as Malcolm hinted at there, we'll be looking at the formation of the United States and the constitutional debates that surrounded it. Okay, so thanks a lot. And it's good night from me. Cheerio. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Mm -hmm.